Today on Care Under Fire, I have Sam Maletta with me. Sam has had a unique career in both policing and fire and rescue and has developed an interest in first responder pre-hospital medical care, which has led to several research projects and publications I'm keen to learn more about today. But welcome, Sam. Thanks for having me. It's a great opportunity. No worries at all. I guess start at the beginning. Did you always have a fascination for lights and sirens or <laughs> did that develop later on in life? <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. Um, speaking to mum, that's that's what fascinated me from a younger age, um, seeing the, the lights and the flashing lights and I guess sirens. Um, I could have easily ended up in construction, I guess. They all have flashing yellow lights. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was sort of sparked my interest as a young young child um, and very fascinated with the, the policing world and that was sort of my direction in younger years. Uh, nothing overly remarkable growing up so I was pretty fortunate to um, you know be surrounded by a good family, a good upbringing. Wasn't a fan of school you know but, uh, it's probably a case of many people in my position just um, keen to sort of get through school and um, get out into the big wide world and in, in the case for me in the younger years, it was um, yeah. get out there and be, be a cop. Yeah, nice. So you were quite young when you joined the Victorian Police Force. 19, were you? Yeah, so I actually applied out of high school. So I'll take it back slightly. Through mm-hmm. sort of my high school years, I um, developed the interest in the fire service as well um, and then got to the, the end of my schooling, finished year 12, and I sort of jumped between um, the idea of, of doing both, um, pros and cons for, for both, no doubt, I, um, and sort of decided to mm-hmm. to head the police route. It was something that I'd had the stronger interest in from a young age. Um, so I applied at 18 and six months to Victoria Police, and it took me, it's about 18 months back then, just to work, <coughs> excuse me, through the, through the process. Um, so I was finally accepted at 19 and started at uh, Glen Waverley at the Academy not long after my 20th birthday. Wow. And how was that, going from pretty standard childhood into straight into the blue? <laughs> yeah, it was. I'd, I'd tried to prep myself as much as, much as I could. Um, I'd always undertaken roles and activities in my life that I thought would, would help lead me in that direction. Um, you know, discussing school, legal studies is probably all I really wanted to pay attention in and media because I could do my own thing in there but I think I tried to learn and speak to people and, and engage as much as I could so I had a had a rough idea of what I was going into. Um, nothing's ever going to prepare you for some of the explosions and things you see but um, yeah it, it was very young it's probably mm. looking back now it's probably too young and I don't think I think most people at that age are probably too young but uh, you just take it on board and um, as you get into your uh, your older years and you you uh, mature a bit, you look back and think about how you could have done some things better. But I think for that age, I was pretty level-headed and switched on as uh, as any other one else at that age, I guess. Yeah. And how did you find the police academy initially? Oh, you hear the story of you know that's the academy way, and then you learn the you know learn the real job um, when you get out there and. I guess that's yeah. very much so. They give you all the background, um, you know, the physical side of it. I was 
again as a as a 20 year old that was my commitment i had nothing else happening and i i now with a with a young family i understand how tough a lot of my uh, squad mates did that you know had families at home and other responsibilities but for me it was just this this great adventure going in you know i was living in the academy at the time and head in on a sunday night and have dinner with everybody and just immerse yourself um in the whole program through the week so I remember just being super keen, wanting to probably do more. I remember we were all arguing. We all wanted uh, the instructors to spray us with capsicum spray. Um, <laughs> pretty silly back then, but, you know, we all wanted to understand what the exposure was like before um, potentially getting that exposure in the real world anyway. Um, they didn't do that? Because they certainly did that to me in the Army on a number of occasions. No, they didn't at the time. Really? Yeah, and I believe they, they had done it in the past. Yeah. yeah I think... Um, Maybe uh, that was 2007, so maybe the, the things times have changed in the in policing. Military probably takes a bit more time to catch up um, <laughs> with some of those workplace uh, considerations they have, yeah. I guess. Um, but yeah, they weren't very keen to uh, allow... I think some of the specialist squads still do it, um, or at the time still did it. Uh, but yeah, for us, there was a... I don't know if there was an event prior to that that led them away from that, but... Um, yeah, the, I guess the only the only thing we had was um, the only complaint I really had through it was wanting to do more. Um, I remember we had a a really hot afternoon where they sort of took us out and we did some real physical stuff, you know, fart leg training and push ups, and they threw us in the pool and gym, and you know we had some some people sort of jumping off to the side to to have a quick vomit and keep going. And at the end of us, a lot of us, you know, had that energy. We're like, oh, we, we'll, you know, this is what we wanted from the start. Um, but they were, they were sort of very limited in how hard they could push everyone. Yeah, right. Um, that wasn't wasn't the usual anyway. That was sort of a one-off. Um, yeah, really keen to work under operational stress. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I don't know if I'd still be that keen now, yeah, <laughs> 15 not. years down the track. But. What sort of stands out for you in those early years of policing? Any jobs that are particularly memorable? Look at... Um, I spent about five years in, in policing. I did just over five years at Um And there's, there's heaps of heaps of stories, heaps of great people. Um, like, I still bump into people now that I'd worked with at some stage or was in the academy with, and it's great to, to see see people. Some, some stand out, some, you know, you might not remember the name, but as soon as you see the face, you know, things come flooding back. Um, and, look, there, yeah, there's, there's heaps of weird wacky and, and scary things that have happened i guess a funny story that i remember and um a bit of a very very odd one bit of a bit of an out there story we're working so i worked at um, melbourne east in the in the center of melbourne in the cbd and heading out to our cars one day which are just parked on swanson street for anyone that knows melbourne just down from the big train station and um, we had a member of the public just alert mm. us to an elderly gentleman down the road who was having a bit of a uh, bit of issues he, he sort of tripped over and was a bit a bit unsteady so we uh w- walked down and did a bit of a welfare check on this gentleman and um, he pulls out a, like an old malways map that he had printed and he told us he'd, he'd come into town i think he was he was he was probably on a walking frame and he was probably in his 80s and um yeah he'd had this this old malways map printed out that had a um you know, listed an adult cinema at that location or around that that spot, <laughs> and um, yeah, he'd come out, come in from the suburbs, and um, I don't know, want, wanted a last trip to a, to an adult cinema, 
Oh. And um, <laughs> and I think you get to maybe you get to a stage in life where you don't really care what everyone has a or <laughs> what people judge you on or think yeah. about. Yeah. So we here we are. We we okay. Well, there's not one here anymore. But let's let's give you a chop out. So we threw his walking frame in the back of the the territory we were driving at the time, and threw him in the car. And we we drove up to one on the top end of the city and. That had a massive staircase, so we said, "Okay, this one that won't suit you." So let's let's go again. And I think we ended up, I think it was down the bottom of Elizabeth Street or something, and found this one and um, got him out the car and on his frame. And happily, he uh, walked off to spend his afternoon. And um, yeah, it's just one of those really funny stories that you look back on. And I guess it's an opportunity to help everyone in the community. And on that day, that was what he needed help with. Hilarious. <laughs> yep. <laughs> So, probably made him very happy. <laughs> absolutely, he's a happy man, and you know we hadn't had to give him a ticket or lock him up for anything, so yes. it was a good good interaction. Yeah, because you are dealing with, you know, a subset of the community there that are often disadvantaged and going through a lot of stuff, and just really not nice people as well. So it'd be easy, I I'd imagine, as a cop to become quite uh, disgruntled with with the wider world when you're seeing, you know the worst of it on a daily basis sometimes so yeah you need something to make you laugh every now and again yeah absolutely I think um, it's easy to fall in the trap sometimes where police you know hang around in the policing circles and you get used to dealing with you know a lot of the time there's people who are committing, committing crimes or uh, bringing their the attention to you or their attention um, based on doing the wrong thing so it's not often that you're dealing with just everyday citizen that uh, is just going about their business and you're able to help them out. They're generally, you know, a victim of the crime or you've pulled them over because they've done something wrong or they're, you know, uh, committing some wider yeah. crime. So every now and then it's nice to, yeah, have that engagement. But you do, absolutely, it um, can be a trap when you're just dealing with, you know, sometimes the dregs of society day in, day out, not to become a bit, I guess, bitter and twisted and suspicious of of everybody and, and everyone's yeah. motives around you in the community 100 percent. and what then sparked your change i know you're always sort of interested in the fire service but after a few years in policing you made the shift across to fire and rescue yeah i did and i sort of i guess i went into the academy um police academy with that interest of uh, within the fire services, you know, of well, as well, and I hadn't set a time frame, and I'd sort of said I'll get into policing and and have a good crack at it, and if I if I'm not enjoying it or I want to make a change, that option's there. But I I sort of I definitely didn't go into the police planning it. Uh, I was just aware of, you know, that was another area of my interest, and I guess what really hit me, working in the city, we had a lot of a lot of police officers coming through uh, on like temporary duties and doing upgrading um, basically trying you know getting experience in you know a sergeant's role before then applying for jobs and I found there was a lot of people coming through that had been in or that were in really great sort of elite areas um, you know special operations group the air wing um, homicide squad and sort of they were at the top of their game within a specialist area but then for some of them it whether they you know the the bucket gets full and they don't want to do that role anymore or physically they may not be uh, able to do that they're getting older they wanted to sort of have a change and go from promotion and I found 
all of a sudden I've seen all these people that might have spent 10 or so years plus in these specialist areas having to come back out and work Friday, Saturday night in the city, dealing with the drunks, um, back on back on the beat basically, only back in the, that general duties, dealing with all the paperwork and those stresses. And that was sort of part of the reason that sort of sparked my interest. Um, and also the, you know, the lack of paperwork, I won't lie. <laughs> it's great in the fire service not having the, the level of stress and paperwork that is placed on you from policing. So I started looking at, at what the fireys were doing. You'd see them out at calls and at different incidents and they just appeared to have a really good um, working condition and work-life balance. And that was something that I sort of attracted me and the future, um, what that was going to offer me as I, I had a family, I didn't have a family at the time, but I was, I was with my, my now wife, you know, long time, long-term girlfriend at the time. And it was just a, yeah, looking for the future and what would give me a, a better lifestyle and, um, some better conditions. So what was that initial fire service training? Like you guys took on a responsibility for rescue and scene response as well. Yeah. So it was, it was a bit of a different experience, I guess, uh, to the police force where going in, I was in a, it was all males um, in my fire service squad, so that was a little bit different already from the police force. We were sort of close to a 50-50. Um, and we are also all the live-out course, so at the time everyone lived out, so you commuted in um, and everyone, it was generally old, I was still sort of one of the youngest at uh, 25, and I think we had a couple of 24-year-olds, but uh, I found it just that little bit different. I don't know if I'd, because I'd gone through the policing and I'd had that fun and experience, I found this a bit different. But, you know, everyone was sort of had those commitments at home that they were also had on the side, you know, that they were worrying about on the side. And we're all travelling in, so a lot of, you know, was weren't keen to necessarily hang out and, and spend too much time outside of work because you had lives to get back to. But it was yeah. um, it's really great, great experience. I did enjoy it. It was... You know the physical side of it, but there's also a, a big background on a lot of the fire science that you learn and the hazmat stuff and the communication stuff, uh, a whole array. So you know there's that mix of classroom learning and and all that work, and then you could go and do some some hot fire type training or some some hands-on uh, rescue type training, some minimal rope stuff, and it really just gets you ready to get out on station and and handle the basic stuff obviously under um, under direction and supervision of, of more experienced crews. Another another difference with the service I, I work for, we do emergency medical response. So I um, receive training within that within that retention uh, sorry, the recruit course where we'd learn how to respond and treat people basically in cardiac arrest. So any mm. sort of unconscious, non breathing casualties. Within that, that sparked a bit of an interest that I had. I'd sort of prior to to the police force, um, I'd done a bit of first aid work and event type um, activities, mm-hmm. um, and then sort of had left that behind in my policing time. And then that sort of just sparked my interest around, you know, how the body works and responding to trauma and various things, um, and just that that medical side of it. You know, not enough where I'd. I'd be signing up to jump across to the, the ambulance service anytime soon, but definitely um, see the benefit and I have an interest in increasing that, that knowledge around the pre-hospital care environment. Yeah. 
Did you feel that police and fire, both in those sort of initial uh, recruit training programs, prepared you to potentially be the first responder until that paramedic got there? Was that a really thorough coverage of trauma care and first aid, or was it a bit lacking at times? In police, in the policing circle, I'll definitely say it was it was lacking. I think there was, I mean, at the time we did, a, I remember doing first aid in the police force, and it was a, you know, a level one first aid style, you know, being trained by um, pretty much a member of the public who's an instructor, you know, a, a first aid instructor done externally. Yeah. And, you know, you were learning slings and all these random, you know, bandages and stuff that you don't really use. And um, mm. it sort of creates that very much so the the attitude of, oh, well, we'll call you an ambulance and they'll come and help you. Um, outside of, you know, doing CPR or something or, or a bit of attempted hemorrhage yeah. control. Which is unreal, isn't it? It's unreal because... You know, police cars move a lot faster than most ambulances and definitely uh, a fire truck. <laughs> they're often first on scene. Um, they're the ones that are going to be there where there is a hostile threat or an active shooter or potentially be there on their own for a little while as well. So it's, it, it surprises me, I guess, that that's not really a big focus. Yeah, absolutely. And... I mean, I'll speak to a bit of it um, later on in this podcast, no doubt. It, it, yeah, it, there just wasn't that appreciation of the police or Johnny on the spot all the time and the benefits of that really quick and rapid patient care and the results yeah. of, you know, whether it's uh, an injured member of the community, um, you know, an off-sider that you're working with, or even in some events, the, the, casu- the, uh, the offender that you're dealing with. It, um, there's a, there's a yeah. whole range of benefits of you know, saving lives, first and foremost, but, um, you know, it might even save yourself that long sort of process through the, the coronial process, having, you know, been involved in a police shooting or a, a pursuit that's gone wrong. Mm. But the fireies, you felt, kind of gave that extra level of detail, particularly, I guess, if you're dragging someone out of a, a building fire and they're unconscious and unresponsive. And Yeah, we did. We, we looked... You know, it was a, a lot more of an in-depth course. We sort of did, uh, I think from memory, is about six or seven days training on our on our initial employment, and then we return in around 12 months' time f- to get signed off officially, um, where we do sort of another four or five days. Uh, I guess a heavy focus based on the program was more so the the CPR, the dealing with cardiac arrest. Mm. But you do obviously all the the first aid side of that as well and, and the, you know the hemorrhage control and trauma care but um, it's definitely work and I'm working on that now um, pushing that forward even more so and really giving uh, the fire service an ability to be that force multiplier to work alongside ambulance and, and really help out especially in mass casualty type situations yeah absolutely 2013 um, the Boston Marathon bombing occurred and 2015, we had Paris uh, attacks. There was a bunch of other terrorism events happening all around the world at that time. That really led you to thinking a bit about research in this counter-terrorism space. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think during my time in the police, I had you know worked a lot of major events in the city, uh, everything from you know the grand final to major parades and 
the terrorism thing was always there, but it, it wasn't as as focused and at the forefront that as what it did sort of in that post-2013, 2015 period. Um, I actually remember back during my academy training playing the victim for uh, a big special operations group exercise. They were running like a, a big active shooter type exercise and we played the victims. And I remember one of the bosses there back then was saying um, that he, he, what he would like to see was the general duties members, you know, trained to like in that, basically what they're doing now with the active armed defender stuff, you know, what we've seen from the state, just get in there, neutralise that threat early. You know, the, the world's changed. We don't wait for that specialist area. Mm. So that was t- 2007. And then you fast forward to around that 13 to 15 mark where all the police agencies around Australia started moving to that model. And I think that's sort of where my, that sparked my interest to see what they were doing and how they were adapting. And that's when I started yeah, doing a bit more research and, and look at what was happening. And I had to think about what had occurred in Paris and how we'd address a similar sort of complex coordinated attack down here mm. uh, in Australia. And that led me um, into a into a scholarship. So I applied for a for a scholarship to head overseas and do some research. At the time, the US were doing a lot of great work around the response to active shooters and the warm zone operations and trauma care in that warm zone and extrication of victims. And I was... Yeah, fortunate enough to um, receive an emergency service foundation scholarship and head over to the US. What did you really draw out of that and how was that received when you got home and started sharing this amongst the service? So it was a a really great opportunity. I think it it introduced me to the world of uh, of tactical Mm. medicine and since then uh, it's grown into... I guess an ability or an understanding of where it actually applies in a lot of the day-to-day work of emergency services and where, how we can use a lot of those learnings where they might come about, you know, focused on those major major events or major attacks, but the reality is a lot of those skills can be used day-to-day. But I, yeah, I had, it was a really good opportunity. I was on the ground in Las Vegas um, two weeks after the Route 91 Mandalay Bay shooting that people would probably be aware of where um, the offender uh, you know, fired a high-powered weapon into mm-hmm. a festival crowd. And that was just by chance. So I'd, I'd already planned to meet the, the police and fire agencies there to discuss their plans for these events. As it turns out, I, I turned up and it wasn't a case of uh, what we would do, it's what we did. So it was very fresh and raw and it was... Um, uh, yeah, I'm really grateful for the opportunity. It happened again. It was all by by chance that the crew that I rode along with and the chief that I was um, meeting with, they'd all been involved. They worked that night, so um, it was all very real and very very raw for them. Yeah, nothing better than hearing it from people who've just recently been there and dealt with that. And it'd almost be uh, neglectful to not. Uh, not learn from that, you know, not take those lessons, learn and, and try and improve what we're doing here. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I even did, so I did a couple of courses. I did the um, tactical emergency casualty care and tactical combat casualty care. Mm-hmm. And one of the, one of the, a couple of the instructors on one of those courses was a Vegas paramedic working for one of the private ambulances. Um, and even getting their, their story of the night and what they experienced and 
the realities of, um, you know, they discuss the, the triage and how things like triage tags and that at times like that just go out the window yeah. because the, the sheer volume and movement of people um, just, they couldn't coordinate that many patients um, using, you know, the, the systems they had in place. Mm. And also, I guess the confusion that it creates where they had, um, so, you know, victims running off and, and, and trying to get to safety. But then when they'd get to a, a hotel or something down the road, they'd call in 911 for help. So then all of a sudden the call centers are getting calls for multiple people throughout the Vegas Strip that have been shot. So yeah. they don't know if it's related to that that first um, first scenario or if it's part of a, a coordinated multi-site attack. Um, so that was a very, very good experience um, to pull those learnings. And I think the agencies did really well based on, you know, what presented that night. It was a yeah. very challenging, challenging situation. Very complex, absolutely. So around that time, you uh, got a position with TACMED as well and really started developing your uh, already extensive skill set in that policing, fire and rescue space and um, focusing on the casualty care aspects. Yeah, I did. I was... I, I still pinch myself. Um, I was really fortunate to, to get a Guernsey with the team. So they were looking for instructors about that same time. And I'd done a lot of the training that, um, you know, similar styles of training that we deliver with TACMED. Mm. Um, so it was an opportunity when I when I interviewed with them and I discussed my, my background and what um, what I'd done in the States and what I'd learnt. It, it was just a perfect fit for me to um, start doing some work with them. And it's just, it's been a, it's been amazing. So they're a really great supportive team, and I just work with some incredible people that have served you know time in in militaries, both you know Australian and international. Um, some really great paramedics and first responders, and I find that times no matter what I'm you know I deliver some some training and hopefully you know inspire impart some knowledge on on participants, but. A lot of the time, I'm also learning amazing things from the people I work with. It's it's a really high caliber of um, of individual they've got training, and it's been really fortunate. I consider myself very lucky to be to be part of that team. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned Matt Pepper. I spoke to him just recently about what he learnt during Lint and after that with his international scholarship and studies. I suppose around that time the idea of paramedics and working in a warm zone or where there was still an active shooter threat was a little bit radical for most of the services across the country, but also necessary to save lives in that if we haven't got anyone doing that life-saving hemorrhage control and those manoeuvres, then by the time you get those patients to a safer space, they have died. So I... I'm really keen to know what your work in warm zone operations and, you know, sort of how we can progress that, those concepts. Yeah, absolutely. So that was, it was pretty much, going back to the scholarship, that was the, the real focus of the scholarship. Um, I'd met with the high threat response program out at Arlington County, which is cover the Pentagon just outside of DC. 
and they sort mm-hmm. of really uh, well they, they started and, and really spearheaded the the rescue task force concept where for the first time of seeing those those paramedics and firefighters uh, forming up team you know teams with the the police as a force protection element and heading into a warm zone to actually quickly assess and, and treat and extricate those patients and they saw they'd seen a deficiency through training and exercises where that didn't occur and then they they developed that concept and saw the benefits of of getting in there and rapidly treating the patients and it it is a difficult shift because I, I guess you have your, your paramedics and firefighters who don't necessarily sign up to, to be going into you know, active shooter hostile type events but the reality is there's times where they find themselves at those events anyway so you know they might end up in the in the warm zone before they've had a realisation or the information's come through that that's occurring and that they are under threat so I think it's mm. it's it's really important for people to, to see the benefit of it. You look back to what changed a lot of this and it was the, the Columbine shooting where there's probably a, a lot of, or there was a lot of lives that were lost based on just an inability to access people within that setting. Um, you know, the crews at the time did what, what the current procedures were and the training. So I, I'd fault no first responder that was there, but we've been able to learn from that and, and adapt and, um, I guess with a, a lot of things in Australia, we're really fortunate that we haven't had, you know, the array of um, active shooter events that the US have or, you know, the terrorist activity mm. that we've seen in the UK or or France. But it doesn't mean that, you know, the reality is not there, that we are a target still and, and the chance of these things occurring and having, have you know, they have occurred in the past in, in parts of Australia. So we're definitely, it's a definitely important area. But it is, I guess, it's very difficult to, um, you know, change people's perception or help people understand the realities of it and how it's actually safer in a sense of training appropriately and having a team set up for those environments rather than people just doing it ad hoc if they come across these these settings. Yeah. And I, I guess... You know, no one in Port Arthur um, on that day thought that Martin Bryant was going to go down and, you know, shoot a bunch of people either. They were, you know, these events are, are not new, even though they are fortunately very rare in Australia. Um, but we certainly need to work on pushing that idea out there and just changing people's mindset from thinking about what's most likely but also considering what the most dangerous course of action could be and having a response plan in place because as you said if they don't uh, do the right care at the right time then you know there's a bad bad outcome yeah absolutely and I think um, you know there's a lot of thoughts and ideas that oh, well that's a that's a policing role and it's a policing area but we know Police are police are understaffed a lot of the time. They're going to have their own priorities around, you know, stopping that threat. That we they can't mm. be relied on to then, you know, deal with the the potential for those mass mass amounts of people that are laying there requiring help. Um, and I know more so from a, a firefighting angle, you know, it's oh well, we don't do a, you know, might not be interested in a warm zone, and I understand the 
the the the concerns around that but i mean we go to we walk into fires we we go into burning structures we go you know yeah. some, one of the most dangerous things we probably do is day to day just on the stopping at an accident on the freeway and you know with cars coming at you at 100 kilometers an hour so there's always going to be a level of risk and it's about how you uh, mitigate and address those risks and by having you know teams that can work together and trained trained to work in those environments and a clear understanding of when to withdraw when not to enter i mean that's got to be a lot safer than just people yeah as i said earlier just doing it ad hoc because they find themselves in the setting and people are needing help Mm. And just tell me a little bit about the crash march concept that you developed. I um, I think it's a really interesting one. When I did my paramedic degree almost 20 years ago now, I'm pretty sure when we were responding to a car accident, we were just taught handbrake on, ignition off, if there's a hazmat sign, wait for the fire brigade. Um, <laughs> and that was about the the total of that education. But you've really developed this, uh, mnemonic where you can look at scene safety and patient care simultaneously so that things that are really important for safety of first responders and the victims happen but not at the expense of patient care and, and vice versa. Yeah so it was a, a paper I recently published and I guess the work for it in a sense has been um, well the idea for it has, has come about over years of my career where I've just been making observations and not really thought too much about it but responding to incidents both as a police officer and now as a firefighter but um, there's a couple there's a re- the real catalyst for it I, I was working and had a, a couple of shifts where we went to pretty serious uh, car accidents so the first one mm. um, we pulled up and it was a, a nose to tail uh, with a, a female patient uh, in the driver's seat who had a pretty significant injury she had a, a femur fracture and I found myself, I jumped in the vehicle trying to take some patient care and, and, and check on her. And I noticed after a few minutes, no matter, you know, handbrake is one of the first things we do time after time after time. You know, the amount of car accidents I've gone to in you know, the last 10 years, to always just, you know, throw that handbrake on. And I noticed that I'd got caught up in treating her and checking on her welfare. Um, you know, a couple of minutes had passed and I looked down and I thought, oh, why, why have I not put that handbrake on? That's the first thing I should have done as I got in the vehicle. Um, so I sort of reflected on that. Got that tunnel vision to yeah, to help. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, and we do a lot of work in, in TACMED about, you know, getting your head out of the game, you know, scan and breathe the environment and, and take it all in and, you know, be, remain situationally aware. And I'd sort of dropped the ball a little bit in the first couple of minutes of that one. And then I... Um, the next night, actually, we went to a, another vehicle collision where <laughs> one of those old stories where old mate had a bit too much to drink. So his mate said, oh, I've had less than you. I'll drive the car for you. Um, mate, you know, sends the car off the road. And luckily, there was no major injuries from that. But I remember pulling up to the scene of that and there was a police officer uh, present. And he said to me, oh, that old mate, he's passed, you know, he's passed out. He's, he's snoring. He's sound asleep. And I looked over and he was actually just sitting there with his head sort of you know chin to chest and uh mm. all i did was raise the head up and open that airway up as you you know um yeah likely unconscious <laughs> yeah yeah 
Absolutely. So he just needed that assistance, that some of that, you know, simple positioning. And then I found myself, you know, we had someone there holding that head straight for the ongoing until, we, you know, we'd got him out onto a stretcher. He wasn't mechanically trapped or anything, but um, just that simple technique of lifting that head to open the airway. And I think we've trained for first aid and in the medical fields a lot. You know, a lot of people, the first thing you see when a pedestrian's here or vehicle collisions, people go in and they're maintaining, you know, that neutral spine alignment and um, really focus on the spinal injuries. But I don't think we're as well accustomed mm. to opening those airways, checking for the major bleeding and the potential yep. for, you know, someone to be bleeding out in the in the footwell of a car, especially if, you know, the vehicle's mm. crushed. Doing a bit of a trauma sweep to begin with. Yeah, what damage is done to the spine is likely done, and yeah, you it's it's yeah, important, it. but it's probably not your top priority in a lot of those circumstances. Although, as you said, there was a huge focus on that in a lot of civilian first aid courses for a long time. Absolutely, and that's a question we get, you know, especially in the, the TACMED circles, coming up all the time, and you know whether or not they've got a, you know end up with a spinal injury are they going to it's more about are they going to live at the yeah. end of this and if they're going to bleed out or their airway's not open there's a fair chance you'll lose someone um with or without that spinal yeah. injury so so I, yeah it was it's interesting i just had those those two cases in close succession and i found myself it was like two or three in the morning sitting in the locker room thinking about how to, you know how to focus on that patient care but also the scene safety and you know what's a tool that we can do and I use the March uh, primary assessment in my own head because I've done obviously from what I've learned in mm. the, the US and now training at TACMED and I find it's a really good primary survey for, for that trauma setting yeah. and um, <laughs> it was it was odd that I'm sort of just sitting in the locker room and come up with well what if I use March? Can I add a, a a scene safety sort of element to it? And I jot, literally just jotted it down on a bit of paper and said, "Yep, that's it." And then I'll um, that sort of got it out of my mind. I'd, I was I was happy with that. And then um, went went about my business for the rest of the night. And then started working on a paper. And and have been fortunate enough to uh, have it published. And um, now it's sort of I'm just trying to share it and share the information yeah. on it. Um, really hoping that it gets picked up yeah and i guess for those listening who aren't quite sure of that acronym march is um stem from tccc and out of the u.s response to major trauma so massive hemorrhage airway control checking out what's happening respiratory wise circulation and then head injury and hypothermia and extrication at the end and you're basically talking about making the scene safe alongside doing all that yeah, absolutely. And, you know, being aware of other things and, and things I've learned through my time in the fire service, you know, airbags and alternate fuel, needing to leave access for our rescue people to get in there, removing um, smart keys from, you know, vehicles, mm-hmm. um, having an ability to fight a fire if there is someone trapped in there. And, you know, the big one that I forgot that day, which, you know, was a bit of a catalyst in this, okay. you know, handbrake, chalk those wheels, make sure that vehicle doesn't roll, yeah. roll down the road. Have you been to any um, MVAs with like a Tesla vehicle or a um, a full battery on fire? Because I have heard that they just burn and burn until they burn out. Is that right? Yeah, I, I, I've been fortunate. I haven't actually had 
uh, responded straight to one, but that's definitely a, a really um, concerning and emerging area, and it's a bit of a, a case of technology advancing before we've really figured out how to deal best with them. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're fairly robust, but what you find is once you have that damage done to the battery and, and the thermal runaway event, you you basically um, just need to punch a heap of water onto those fires to to control them. And it, it's a, yeah, there's still a lot of research out and ideas mm-hmm. being passed on or made on how best to deal with them. But there's you look at some of the statistics, both in Australia and overseas, like I think New York City, it's just New York itself has had a heap of uh, fatalities based on not so much vehicles, but, um, you know, those electric scooters and different than bikes that are in buildings that catch fire yeah, right. and how quickly they develop and um, and they've led to yeah, a lot of fatalities overseas. So it's a definitely a concerning area that there's a lot of work being done on. Because mm, there's a lot more of them around now, but we're not, we're not used to it yet. So, yeah, interesting. Watch this space. Sam, just tell me a little bit about that fire as a weapon concept that you've developed and published on. Yeah, so that was, um, it actually came from a, a uni project that I did. So I was studying some, some terrorism and security studies at uni and had an assignment where I floated the idea of looking at, at the topic of fire as a weapon, which is a, it's been around for a few years, but it's gaining a lot more traction in recent times internationally and I was yeah so I basically just did an assignment on um, the risks that Australia faced with the use of fire as a weapon so when I say fire as a weapon it's the use of by uh, some sort of violent actor whether it's a, a terrorist or um, someone under you know under, uh, having a psychiatric episode where they use fire basically to attack um, or complicate a response so it's not just a, an arson incident where someone's trying to cover up a crime or do an insurance job. It's more about targeting of people, so it could be used as, as an ambush tactic or, um, you know, during a barricade to keep responding police, you know, from coming mm-hmm. in. Um, and I guess Mumbai 2008 really put it on the map when that generated some some huge media uh, based on, you know, the fire that occurred during the, the barricade situation there. So... Yeah, it sort of stemmed from this assignment, the interest that I had, and then that grew afterwards. I I managed to publish a paper on that um, and the risks that we we face here in Australia by terrorists using fire as a weapon, and I recently went on and and wrote another paper, which I published, um, which sort of broke it down a bit more, and that was about just getting the information out there to have a lot of the decision makers and a lot of the agencies understand what the threats are and the fact that we need to look at these incidents a little bit differently to what we have in the past. Again, it comes back to the warm zone stuff that we discussed where turning up at an incident and making it up as you go is not ideal. You know, what what work can be done into the, in the lead up to to actually prepare and have some planning and, and guide our, our first responders and those initial sort of frontline supervisors to guide their decision making to effectively help people and and respond safely to these incidents yeah what do you see our biggest risk to kind of first responders in australia currently we've learned a lot over the years and we're always kind of advancing but what are those 
big risks now in your mind? I think, and I think it's a bit of a human nature one, um, but I think complacency is is a really big factor for the emergency services. I think that uh, if you look at the events of really the last 12 months, I don't really remember a time where we've had so many police and we've actually had you know ambulance, paramedics and uh, recently a firefighter as well uh, where they've been they've killed um, in the line of duty. There's always, you know, policing would definitely hold the, 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 the highest numbers for fatalities during their service over the years. Mm. Um, but I think there's there's really concerning um, events that have been occurring and I'm not saying I'm not accusing any of these people that have been killed that are being complacent not at all but I think um, we all need to be aware when working in the the emergency services as a first responder not to not to become complacent I remember back doing booze buses so after the police academy you'd go out and do you know a few months work in the line at, uh, on a booze bus and I remember Back in those days, we had our um, you had the option of wearing the covert um, ballistic vest, so that was something I wore. And a lot of people looked at me funny and said, "Oh, well, you're, you're you're working a booze bus. You're not going, you know, you're not chasing crooks." And I said, "Well, if I wanted to take out a, a big group of coppers, where would I head?" And mm-hmm. chances are, a booze bus on the side of the street's a pretty easy target, um, you know. And that that sort of attitude. I think I I tried to keep that up and not become complacent in my time. You know, if I was working the watch house, I'd I'd wear my wear my kit. So at least I had you know some some a firearm and and baton and spray and things to protect myself if something come across the counter. Um, within the fire service, um, it can be you know there's there's a trap where you may you know turn up to lots of alarms. Um, and you know, I think anyone that works in a major city's office blocks used to, you know, doing the evacuation. Someone's burnt toast, or mm. an alarm's gone off, and it's not about just oh, well, just another one of those. It's keeping your mind active and situationally aware. So when, so, you know, that that alarm that you might have done half a dozen of in the last couple of days turns out to be an actual actual job. You're prepared to to actually respond accordingly and do what you need to, and you're not a deer in the headlights. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's a big one, and especially over time when you know you get used to, you get more comfortable in your role. Whether it's you know as a paramedic walking into people's houses, um, you know in policing roles, just you know, just another vehicle intercept, or mm-hmm. police. Yeah, sorry, in, in the fire service, it's turning out for you know the third or fourth alarm for that shift. When you become too comfortable and complacent and just thinking it's all business as usual, that's that's a real danger, I think, for us. Yeah. Yeah, always got to know where your exit is and uh, how to keep yourself and your partner safe, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, it, you know, there's, it's not always, uh, you know, a violent or aggressive threat, but there's things that can get us all the time. You know, we saw the, the unfortunate case in uh, Victoria, the, the police members that were killed just working on the roadside. So mm-hmm. um, there's so many things that can get thrown, thrown at first responders um, that, you know, you really want to be aware of your surroundings and uh, again you know anyone that's been injured in the past or killed in the past I'm not saying any of that was related to complacency but I think it's it's all just a reminder for us to remain really vigilant um, in the work we do yeah having the right mindset to deal with whatever's thrown at you in terms of risks to first responders 
and that complacency piece. What have you seen in your career that really makes you want to focus on that mindset of being alert and calm and able to respond in a functional way? Yeah, so there's, I mean, there's heaps of situations that you, you deal with and you, you don't think much of and you look back and think about the potential um, of how that could have easily escalated and could, you know, things can escalate through your own actions and how you, you know, you communicate with people or just naturally on, on the progression of the scene and how things play out. There was a, a story I have uh, from my time in policing where I was just on a, a foot patrol and it was just outside the station and... Um, we were, yeah, just working. Uh, there's a one-way street that we're walk, walking on in Flinders Lane in Melbourne, and I just saw a guy riding up towards us on a push bike, um, so riding down the wrong side of, you know, up the wrong way of a one-way street, didn't have a helmet on, and I was describing, a, you know, someone that sparked our attention. Um, anyone in policing yeah. circles can probably picture the, the type <laughs> of person. That's a polite way of saying it. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah, keeping a bit, of P, a bit PC in this. <laughs> Scrote, as we might uh, <laughs> refer to people. Um, so I thought I'd, ha- I'd, I thought I'd stop him and, and just have a chat. and um, Yeah, and it sort of played out from there. So pulled him in and, and just started having a chat to, chat to old mate and um, alerted him to, you know, why, we, why we'd stopped him and my thinking at the time was there's a chance that, you know, he's on someone else's bike that he shouldn't be or yeah. you know, there's a fair chance this guy's going to have an outstanding warrant or similar. Um, but it was, a, it was a really good... <laughs> I described a good interaction, but it was a really polite interaction. I'd had, I was just having a casual chat to him, like, you know, mate, what are you doing? you got no helmet on, you're up the wrong side of the road and now you come across me, like, I've got to do something about this. Mm. And... Um, we we're just having a chat, and I was getting his details and running his name as we do, and it was pretty much just going to be a case of, um, you know, shoot off, mate. You know, off you go. Take care. If you know, if there's no warrants or anything, um, and with that, one of the the members I'd working with, who was sort of standing in the background and on, on a different angle, alerted to me that there was there was you know s- some odd shapes on his back. So, with that, we've secured him, and we've actually located. Um, like a really long kitchen knife in a sort of a makeshift um, sheath on his back, strapped to his back. Yeah, right. And then um, we've taken him into the station and done a further search and located like another knife strapped to the inside of his short legs uh, under his under his shorts. Yeah, you're not carrying that to cut up your lunch. That's um, for another reason. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. And, um, yeah, having a chat to him and, and he was basically on his way to, to see someone and settle a score. Um, and yeah. it was, yeah, it was, I guess, a really eye-opening moment in that something as simple as, a, oh, this guy hasn't got a helmet on, you know, it could turn into the potential for us to be stabbed or, um, you know, if, 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 if it had been 10 minutes, half an hour later, he could have been potentially on his way back from undertaking uh, some sort of attack or assault on someone and, his demeanour then might have been, you know, a paranoid one where he thought we knew what had gone on and he wanted to escape us to, a, um, you know, avoid apprehension. So that was just a really interesting one and it just shows that your everyday sort of interactions with people can lead to um, or can really be uh, catastrophic events. So, um, 
that was just yeah one one that's played on my not played on my mind but just always one that I think of of um, you know the potential of how that interaction could have ended. Yeah, just being ready for whatever comes your way. Absolutely, because it's you know it's when the calls come through for you know an armed robbery or an assault that you know you're revved up you're re- you're going to those scenes sort of anticipating what might occur and the fact that you might end up in a in a scuffle or you know some sort of use of force situation but um these things are you know they present present themselves at all kinds of weird and odd times mm-hmm. how did you balance that between being vigilant but not hyper vigilant being trusting but not not to your detriment you know like i find even in my own practice when i work with a a lot of people that um have abused drugs and alcohol you just get run down for being lied to and you know you're being lied to and it's just exhausting and then you just don't believe anything that they say to you anymore (laughs) because of their addiction or whatever they're working with and you yeah you become a bit burnt out i think or there's a potential there for that yeah, it's, it's, so it's always an interesting one and I didn't have, um, you know, a long career in policing. I did five years, so it wasn't, you know, 15 plus that some veterans have and, you know, nursing and, and ambulance where you, you do become fairly bitter and burnt out sometimes by these these dealings um, with certain elements of the community. But I found, you know, communication was always a big one and it was that balance of, you know, stating your, your, your authority and being quite clear with people with you know the fact that you were you were there you're in charge you know this is this is what's going on I'm talking to you for these reasons um, but also coming at them at a level where um, I guess they're not necessarily threatened and get their back up straight away but they feel like they're almost talked on you know at a, at a, at a level where they can have some sort of interaction where the, you know they might gain the benefit of the doubt in some settings, you know, um, mm. but yeah, I think communications is, is just a huge one is it really is. And you know, you go into situations and if people are already angry and amped up and that's a level you come in, it's always a lot harder to draw them back down and, and calm that situation. So if you're able to come in with sort of a, a bit of a calm level head, you know, have a few breaths and, um, just come in at that level where you can escalate if needed, um, but not pushing people to that that level straight away. That's probably yeah. um, a big one, and and that's a tricky balancing act. And I mean, I've I remember situations where I'd you know I'd come in yelling at screaming at people and you know battens out and um, you know you've passed directions, and then at the end of it, I end up sitting there for ten minutes having a chat with them. And, and, you know, it ends up in a bit of an explanation of, look, this is why I came in at this level and this is what I've been dealing with. Do you understand now? You know, and th- th- that was common, um, you know, dealing with your alcohol fueled violence and that through the city where you'd get a group of guys that, you know, might have just had a few too many drinks and not really a criminal or had much dealing with police and all of a sudden they've been, you know, told to sit on the ground or put on the ground and, you know, a few things have... Um, you know, a few actions by police, you know, to detain them or to, to check them. But um, I think once you communicate why that's occurred, they're pretty understanding um, in some settings, you know. <laughs> a lot of people still hate the yeah. police, but communication, I think, is just a big one. Yeah. What advice would you 
give others aspiring for that career in policing or fire and rescue who really want to like you think outside the box and be able to respond to a whole variety of emergencies and develop their themselves as a professional first responder yeah so i think um first and foremost like have a have a crack and um really take opportunities so throw yourselves in and and learning opportunities and that starts i guess prior um you know we have a lot of people come to us in the fire service and um you know they might be referred to from by friends or they've just you know knocked on the station door and they're like i'm i'm keen to be a firefighter or i'm keen to be a police officer whoever you deal with and um i find that you start having a conversation and if they're not able to give you some of the information that first and foremost, you know, on a, on an internet page for a service, I start sort of looking at them and go, well, you haven't even put in any time or effort to learn a bit about what this role is or what this organisation is. Yeah. But you're asking me for information. So um, first and foremost, you know, start doing your research. And, you know, part of that is chatting to people, read up about it, you know, find out what the, the requirements are, what the selection processes are, um, and really put yourself above any other applicant. You know, try and get as much information as you can. Um, once you get into the into the jobs, like I, um, I look back now at you know twenty year old Sam, and I was probably still a bit immature and and didn't have the the, the wide sort of outlook on things. And back then, I was pretty happy to avoid paperwork. Like I was super keen to get involved. I loved catching the crooks. But if there's an opportunity to, um, you know, hand that paperwork onto the detectives or whoever it was, I was all about, yep, all yours, I'll go out and, you know, get the next one for you sort of thing. Mm. But um, I look back now and look at, you know, how you can shape your career and the opportunities. And I think a lot of those settings I should have taken things on board because when you're young and when you, well, when you, I should say not when you're young, but when you're new into the job, that's your opportunity to learn. And that's when people are willing to, to actually teach you the way so that exposure gives you an ability to improve yourself and learn and, and that will help you help you down the track because you've had experience in those things so um, you know definitely jump in and, and get involved in those early years in your job and ask the questions and, and learn and try and do do as much as you can and get as, as great of exposure and I think also in in taking those opportunities you you know look for look for your own self in improvement i think it's important like in the police force it's it's a bit trickier with the shift work and that in the in the fire service obviously we're pretty lucky we have gyms on station and things but there's no one forcing you to go into the gym and you know remain fit and active so take that upon yourself don't have that negative outlook of oh well, you know especially in the policing circles it's easy to say oh well i didn't get gym time or you know, there's no encouragement. Take it upon yourself and, and do it yourself because it, your fitness can be, um, you know, can potentially save your life or help you out one day and it helps you even just dealing with the the changes and the stresses of shift work. Yeah. Um, and always just look to, yeah, improve your knowledge. So I did a diploma of paramedical science early on in my time in the fire service. I just self-funded and um, did that out of interest. And at the time... I didn't really have a specific application for it outside of building some knowledge. Um, but, you know, seven, eight years down the track now, I I look at that and that actually, you know, helped me get my job at, at TACMED, the, the, the casual position I've got with TACMED. Yeah. That was sort of a, a minimum prerequisite. And that also contributed to, to my scholarship um, 
and entry into some further postgrad studies in, in tactical medicine. So that was um, that was really important. And yeah, well, I didn't have the clear plan at the time. I just knew that it would help at some stage. And if not, uh, it will help you on a job one day in the future. You just never know. <laughs> Yeah, spot yeah. on, spot on. Yeah. And probably another another thing to add, I think, um, as well, anyone working in the emergency services, and I touched on, on it a little bit earlier about working, you know, becoming sort of surrounded by the co-workers, it's always good, I think, to, to maintain a balance. So I've, I've maintained friends outside the jobs, both jobs. Um, and it's, it's interesting. It's, sometimes it's frustrating because your outlook on the world doesn't match up with what their outlook on the world is, but it's also uh, can be really grounding at the time just to, to have that removal of not everyone you deal with is bad or silly because they've got themselves in a situation um, and you just have that ability to break away and, you know, my friends aren't overly impressed by the fact I'm, you know, I'm an ex-cop or fireman, I'm just, you know, Sam that's been in the group since high school and, you know, take the piss and do all that and it, it's actually good because you don't, want to less necessarily be um, necessarily you know be oh you know telling us about work and what did you do and what you know yeah. it's great just to uh, just be one of the one of the guys broaden your horizons a bit absolutely absolutely how often do you get called fireman Sam and how much does that tick you off <laughs> <laughs> I've actually gone to a community event once and um yeah, there was a mother that actually came up and thought I just put on the name tag for, for community <laughs> events. <laughs> <laughs> well, my daughter loves pointing it out every time it comes on TV now, so... <laughs> you, you can't help help what your parents called you. <laughs> That's it. I mean, they knew. Somehow they knew all those years ago. <laughs> 35 plus, 36 years ago, they knew what was coming. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Sam, thanks so much for sharing just a couple of the insights over what has been a really broad career. You are the man you want at most emergencies, I'd imagine, with your skill set. So thanks for your time and for sharing your research and ideas. I really appreciate it. Thanks for your time, Em. Um, yeah, th thanks for reaching out. It's been a really great opportunity and... Um one of those things will probably sit here for hours telling stories, but everyone gets sick of me. So, um, yeah, appreciate for the op the opportunity of coming out and sharing this, sharing some of the knowledge and some of the things I've done. Um, you know, small small person in a in a huge industry with a lot of great people around. So, it's been a great opportunity to share a bit of my experience. Thank you. You're really humble. Thank you for your service.